Hello, guys, and welcome to Grow Series, an MCAT review podcast. After a much-needed break after finishing psychology and sociology, I want to go ahead and get as many episodes of bio and biochem done before I get real busy with med school again. I appreciate the support from the reviews to the emails. It means a lot, and I'm glad you guys like the psychology and sociology part. As of now, I think I'm going to separate biology and biochemistry. I might focus on going over biology first, then biochemistry, or one episode than the other, but there won't be episodes that intertwine a ton of biochemistry and biology together besides the concepts that are already naturally intertwined. So just like psychology and sociology, this podcast should not be your main source of content review. Take that from books, notes, whatever. This is more of a passive supplemental source of content for when you're in your car, on your daily commute, or you're walking your dog, whatever you do, just like a passive supplemental source. So we're going to just run through concepts in your head so you can get more custom to them and you can get the score that you're aiming for come test day. Also, another heads up, I'm human. I can make mistakes. If I do make a mistake, let me know via email, but I do try my best to double and triple check my sources to make sure everything is correct for you guys. So in this episode, we'll be talking about reproduction, genetics, and evolution. This is, as you can see, biology. We'll be going over topics like the cell, how a baby does its baby stuff and becomes a baby, and then touch on concepts like aging. Most of this episode is focused on the nitty gritty details, so it might be an episode you listen to a few times. So after a few months off, let's not waste any time, let's get right into it. Alright, well, most of this y'all have already probably gone over a thousand times through high school and undergrad, but it's all good. First thing is the cell cycle and mitosis. So each cell has 23 sets of chromosomes. We got 22 of the autosomes, which are the normal body cells, And the 23rd set of chromosomes are the sex chromosomes. The 2N number is 46. So we have 46 chromosomes in a somatic cell. But the sex cells, those have 23 chromosomes. So sex cells kind of think of them as little kids. They're half as tall as big adult body cells. Also, let's not confuse sex chromosomes with sex cells. Sex cells are the cells used to make babies. Sex chromosomes are the 23rd set of chromosomes, which is XY for males and XX for females. Now, the cell cycle and mitosis. The cell cycle for mitosis has four basic stages you got to know about. Four quarters of a pie. Three of those quarters are interphase. And as you can assume, since three-fourths stages is 75% of the stages, interphase is the longest part of the cell cycle. So we have G1, S, G2, and M. The first three stages are interphase. So G1... S and G2 are the interface stuff. Now, a cell is chilling, wants to get that cell cycle going. They start off in that first step, which, like I said, is G1. Now, imagine that cell goes, oh, crap, definitely not ready to divide at this point. What would that cell do? It would go into the G0 phase. So G0 is an offshoot of G1. The cell won't commit to the second, third, and fourth step of the cell cycle, which is S, G2, and M, without knowing it's 100% prepared for that. It's like in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire when they settle with the money they earned or they can go further and answer more questions and risk the money they earned. The cell that chills in G0 are like, you know, nah, I'm actually good. I'll stay where I'm at. Also, a little tidbit of information. A good way scientists can see if the interphase is currently happening is that they look at the chromosomes themselves. If you can see the actual formed chromosomes that you're accustomed to seeing, then that's not interphase. Interphase is all less condensed chromatin. So, okay, more details about the steps themselves. G1, we call the pre-synthetic gap. It's the gap for synthesis. So in interphase, we have a synthesis sandwich here. It goes G1, S, and G2. Mitosis in the end is kind of like a dessert to the sandwich. Mitosis comes after all of it. So G1 is the pre-synthetic gap. Here, cells make organelles so they can make two things energy, and protein. And with the production of both of those comes bigger size. So G1 has to pass a certain test before it can get into synthesis, and that is the restriction point. Here we make sure that everything is ready for launch into the important part. Just like people check a plane to make sure everything is ready for launch, G1 has to make sure the DNA is all correct and checks all the boxes. So G1, we have the cellular contents duplicated, like basically everything but chromosomes. 
Chromosomes takes its own special stage, and that's the synthesis stage. The synthesis stage is where the DNA gets synthesized. We replicate genetic info so that the daughter cells have a full set of chromosomes. Remember, we're talking about mitosis here, so we only want two daughter cells, not four like meiosis. Anyways, yeah, so the chromosomes have two identical chromatids that are bound together at the centromere. Now, something that tripped me up all the time was the concept of ploidy. What is ploidy? That is the sets of chromosomes. So ploidy doesn't change in S. Sure, we're doubling the DNA, but the amount of chromosomes does not change. How does that make sense? We still have 46 chromosomes, but 92 chromatids. See, there's tons of words here that can confuse you. So chromatin makes chromosomes. Chromatid is a duplicated chromosome that is formed after synthesis. So the amount of chromosomes stays the same, 46 chromosomes. But we have double the chromatids because that is what chromatid is. It's just the duplicate chromosome. But since it isn't individualized, since it's still connected to the same centromere as the original chromosome, it's not a fully mature chromosome yet. It's a little baby chromatid. So it gets a little confusing, but basically think we have the same number of chromosomes, but after the S stage, each chromosome has their buddy, the new chromatid that joins the squad. All right, so then we get into the last part of the synthesis sandwich, the G2 stage. So we have double the genetic material coming into G2 compared to G1 because we have 92 chromatids. But just like G1, where we had to pass a checkpoint, G2 also has a checkpoint. Here, we make sure there's enough organelles and cytoplasm to divide and see if DNA replication turned out okay. So G1 checkpoint, we see if the DNA is even able to replicate. G2, we see if the DNA replication turned out all right and if the organelles that we replicated in G1 also turned out all right. After all that, we got mitosis. And mitosis's sidekick is cytokinesis, which, when mitosis is finished doing its thing, splits that cytoplasm and organelles into their two daughter cells. So a good acronym for mitosis is go, Sally, go, make children. G1, go. S, synthesis, which is Sally. G2, which is go again. Make children. Mitosis is make. And cytokinesis is children. Go, Sally, go, make children. G1, S, G2, mitosis, and cytokinesis. All right, so before I go into mitosis itself, I want to emphasize the importance of these checkpoints. Now, imagine we got a really weird looking cell, really wonky, and then G1 and G2 checkpoints are like, screw it, let it pass. What might happen if these cells keep going through mitosis and keep making new copies? We might get cancer. So with cancer, these weird looking cells not only have the confidence to go through cell division, they actually increase the speed of cell division to make tumors. Not good, we don't vibe with that. So if the cancer gets crazy, it can metastasize, and that's when it spreads through one of the two ways, bloodstream or the lymphatic system. That means it can spread to other organs pretty easily, which is pretty scary stuff. So how does that happen? How could a weird-looking cell possibly get approved to go through the checkpoints? Well, one of the most common mutations for cancer is a mutation of the gene TP53. TP53, so what does that do? It makes P53. Well, what the heck is P53 then? Seems like a random letter and number. P53 is the star of these checkpoints in G1 and G2. So to remember TP53, the quarantine showed us that if we're out of TP, toilet paper, we're kind of screwed, right? Well, without TP53 making P53, we're kind of screwed as well. Now, we got other things too, like the cyclin-dependent kinases. So basically, cyclins are these things that increase or decrease in concentration depending where the cell is at in the cell cycle. Cyclins are just proteins, right? So they kind of swing between high and low concentration depending on where you are in the cell cycle. So these cyclins, aka cell cycle proteins, bind to the CDK to make active complexes. So the binding makes this fancy bigger machine which phosphorylates transcription factors. So the joining of CDKs and cyclins is basically the flag that says, all right, transcription factors, you're good to go. The transcription factors then go ahead and finish the job by promoting the transcription of genes for that next stage of the cell cycle. But P53 is like the star quarterback for these checkpoints. When the star quarterback goes down, usually no matter how good the rest of the players are, the season is basically lost. Alright, so we clearly talked about how important those checkpoints are and who the key players are, but we made it 75% of the way through the cell cycle. You know, we got those three easy parts that make up interphase, Now let's get to the big guy, mitosis. Mitosis is a process in which two identical daughter cells are made from a single cell. 
So interphase, we got everything ready, made sure all the boxes were checked, and mitosis had the proper ingredients to do its magic. Now mitosis has to actually do it. Mitosis here only occurs in somatic cells, so those are cells that aren't used in sexual reproduction. The stuff down there uses meiosis. So with mitosis, we got the four steps, prophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. Then of course, you can't forget the sidekick we mentioned, cytokinesis, which is all the way at the end. The best way to remember mitosis is the mnemonic P on the mat. Prophase is P, metaphase, anaphase, telophase are the mat part. And of course, to keep this podcast PG, the P in P on the mat is simply the letter P, right? Definitely not talking about the other P. So you got that weirdo psychonesis who's kind of watching some person pee on the mat at the end there. And you got that prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase. Perfect. So prophase, first step in mitosis here. Lots going on and it's kind of the most confusing, honestly. So first, we condense that chromatin into chromosomes. Remember, chromatin is just what makes up chromosomes. Don't confuse it with chromatids. Then once the chromosomes are nice and dense, the centriole pairs that makes up the centrosome splits and goes to the opposite sides of the cell. Now before I get any further, you might be like, oh, centrosomes, yeah, you talked about that earlier with chromosomes. No, I did not, you're wrong. Centrosomes are different from centromeres. Centromeres are merely where the chromatids are bound together with the chromosomes. See what I did there? Centromeres merely. Centrosomes are an organelle that consists of centrioles. So to understand it, centrosomes have some centrioles in it, nothing to do with centromeres. Anyways, yeah, so centrioles from the centrosome go ahead and move to the opposite sides of the cell, and their job is to make sure that DNA is correctly divided. The centrioles are anchors. They're the muscle that lets the spindle fibers tug and rip on the chromosomes later on in mitosis. So it's basically like preparing for tug-of-war. In tug-of-war, your strongest person's in the back. They're the anchor. The centriole is the anchor here. So he or she's in the back and spindle fibers connect to that centriole and get ready to pull on that chromosome. All right, the nuclear membrane dissolves and the protective halo the chromosome have disappears. They're exposed genetic information and the spindle fibers are about to pull. So we got one side of the spindle fibers that is attracted to the centrioles, but spindle fibers can't touch the genetic information barehanded. They need the equivalent of oven mitts, and those are kinetochores. Kinetochores are protein structures that are attachment points for some spindle fibers, but they don't just sit there waiting for spindle fibers. They make their own fibers to help out. So in prophase, we condense the chromatin, we had centrioles go to the opposite sides, had the spindle fibers begin forming, and then right at the end, the nuclear membrane dissolves and the genetic information is right there, exposed to the world. Then we have metaphase. Here, central pairs are at the opposite ends of the cell, and the kinetochore fibers are finally interacting with the spindle fibers at the chromosome to really get everything aligned. This is another step of organization, getting everything straight, but like literally straight. We're aligning chromosomes at the metaphase plate, so the name metaphase means after appearance, and that can kind of help you out. So in prophase, that nuclear membrane dissolves and the genetic information is exposed to the world. It appears. Metaphase is post-appearance. So we got everything straightened out. We have anaphase. Anaphase is chaotic. Centromeres, the middle section of those chromosomes, split, and the sister chromatids are pulled towards opposite poles. So remember, there were 96 chromatids after the S phase. We're splitting those into the two opposite sides of the cell, so you can kind of see what's going on here. By the end of it, we want 46 chromatids on each side. Finally, we have telophase and cytokinesis. Telophase is the opposite of prophase. The spindle apparatus we had going on goes ahead and disappears. That nuclear membrane reforms, nucleoli reappear, and the chromosomes uncoil into chromatin. Finally, the curtain closes with cytokinesis separating cytoplasm and the organelles so that the daughter cells have sufficient supplies and everything is dandy. So boom, that's a cell cycle with mitosis. Lots of action, lots of drama, riveting story. Now we got meiosis. The important and obvious differentiation here is that it only occurs in germ cells, cells that make gametes. So in men, the gametes are sperm, in females, they're eggs. One thing you gotta know about germ cells though, they don't only do meiosis. Germ cells do meiosis and mitosis. Easy thing to slip on, you know, thinking somatic cells are only mitosis 
and germ cells are only meiosis, but that is wrong. Germ cells do both mitosis and meiosis. But since meiosis is so unique to them, let's talk about it. So what is the difference? Well, meiosis makes four daughter cells, meanwhile mitosis only makes two. But both mitosis and meiosis have one round of replication. Meiosis has two rounds of division instead of one, just like mitosis. So meiosis is one round of replication, two rounds of division, and mitosis, the one we just went over, is one round of replication and one round of division. Another difference is that mitosis wants to make two exact daughter cells. So if you got a liver cell that's undergoing mitosis, you want to have two of the exact same types of cell come out for mitosis. Meiosis is different. With making babies, we want some uniqueness, some diversity, something that might help humanity evolve. So when we make our four daughter cells at the end of meiosis, they aren't identical copies to the parent cells. They're all unique. So sex cells are considered N, and somatic cells, aka body cells, are considered 2N. So sex cells have one set of chromosomes, body cells have two. And that makes sense. If sex cells of a female and a male come together, we want a human, not something with double the amount of chromosomes. And one plus one equals two. One set of chromosomes from the mom, one set of chromosomes from the dad, two sets of chromosomes for the kid, just like the body cells of you and I. So meiosis one, here we have haploid daughter cells from the homologous chromosomes being separated. So we're gonna skip all the interface stuff, by the way, we're gonna jump into the steps themselves. Now remember with mitosis, there were stages of mitosis that go P on the mat, prophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. Same thing with meiosis. So prophase one in meiosis, just like prophase and mitosis, has lots of stuff going on, and some of the actions are similar, some of them are a little different. So in prophase 1, chromatid condenses into chromosomes, spindle fibers form, and the nuclear membrane disappears. That's all identical to mitosis. What's unique is the concept of synapsis and crossing over. Synapsis is when homologous chromosomes come together and intertwine. So the chromosomes from the mom and the chromosomes from the dad join together and intertwine. Now if you've seen how a chromosome looks, you notice that there are two chromatids on each chromosome, that are hanging together by that centromere. So we have a dad chromosome with two sister chromatids and a mom chromosome with two sister chromatids. Total, that means four chromatids. That's called a tetrad. So synapsis is when the chromatids get to know each other. They touch tips, not like that, and then we get into crossing over, where chromatids, after that, touching with each other, decide to switch places. So crossing over is when chromatids break at the chiasma and switch pieces of DNA with each other. Chiasma is just a fancy way to say the point of contact between two chromatids and a homologous pair. So essentially, it's like if I shook hands with someone and we decided to just cut our hands off and switch them with each other. We both ended up with two hands, but one of our hands is kind of different. It's the other person's hand just on our body. That's good for the chromosomes because more genetic variation is great. If the chromatids can be unique, then we have a less chance of scary complications occurring because of genetic similarity. Then we get metaphase one. This is pretty similar to what happens in mitosis, but instead of the chromosomes aligning at the metaphase plate, AKA the middle, we instead have the homologous pairs, AKA the tetrads, align at the middle. Now, since we have four chromatids on each spot, we don't have to rip the chromatid off at the middle part. That middle part being the centromere, what we ripped off in mitosis. Then anaphase one comes in. The homologous pairs are put on the opposite poles and that separating to different poles is called disjunction. The word disjunction isn't used just in meiosis. We actually use that word in mitosis too. So disjunction is when you put the genetic information on opposite ends. Telophase one comes in and the nuclear membrane reforms around the nucleus. And then we have two daughter cells by cytokinesis. Sometimes the cell takes a little breather at that point and that's called interkinesis. So, okay, at this point, we had the first meiotic division finish, and we have two cells. Each of them have the same number of chromatids as a parent cell, because all we did was just duplicate the information like we did in mitosis, and we split them into two different cells. So this is kind of like mitosis in a way, just that we had that crossing over going on, and we had that tetrad formation where they aligned at the metaphase plate as four chromatids, and we split the genetic information in a different way. Mitosis pulls at the centromere, but here we separated the homologous chromatids. Now, meiosis 2, this is called chromatid separation. So meiosis 1 was reduction division, 
meiosis II is chromatid separation. Here, it's important to know in prophase II, the homologous chromatids don't duplicate. They just separate. So we don't have that loading phase of interphase again where we duplicate the information. Now, here we just go right back into it and dissolve the nuclear envelope, get centrioles to migrate to the poles, and get the spindle apparatus to form. Metaphase two, same thing as before. Chromatids line up at the metaphase plate, nothing too crazy. Anaphase two, we split the chromatids at the centromere. So like mitosis, where we pulled at the centromere, in anaphase two of meiosis, we split at the centromere. And remember, this is happening in both of the daughter cells we made at the end of meiosis one. So essentially, we're getting four daughter cells. Then telophase two happens with cytokinesis. The same old nuclear membrane reforming stuff happens and boom, done with meiosis two. So now that that's all over, let's get into reproductive anatomy. So moving on from the cell cycle jazz, basically what you got to know is biological sex is determined by the 23rd pair of chromosomes, which is why they're called the sex chromosomes. XY is male, XX is female, and the ovum for females only carries the X chromosome, but the sperm can carry X or Y. So the sperm differentiates the sex of the child. That makes sense so far. So the X chromosome, it carries a lot of genetic information. If someone is hemizygous, it means they only have one copy of a gene. So guess what? Since males are XY, they're hemizygous. They got half of the X chromosomes as females who are XX. This means that they have a higher risk for some diseases, since a disease carrying allele can't be suppressed by having a second chromosome, which is normal. So because of that, females express sex-linked disorders way less than males, but they can be a carrier because they can have a sex-linked disorder that's just chilling on one X chromosome, but it isn't showing itself because they have another X chromosome that's telling the dysfunctional one to chill. The Y chromosome for males, not as cool, doesn't have much genetic information besides the sex-determining region Y we call the SRY. So SRY, sex-determining region Y. So let's talk about males and sperm first, and then we'll get into females. So the actual anatomy of the males starts with the testes. The primary gonads develop into testes, which have two functional components, the seminiferous tubules and the interstitial cells of Leydig, aka the Leydig cells. The testes themselves hang in the scrotum, which is the external pouch that hangs below the penis. The seminiferous tubules are the sites of germination, maturation, and transportation of the sperm cells within the male testes. And the Leydig cells are found next to the seminiferous tubules in the testicle. They make testosterone when luteinizing hormone, aka LH, is present. So sperm is made in those seminiferous tubules, but they get nourished by Sertoli cells. So their home is the seminiferous tubules, but their energy source are Sertoli cells. So, all right, the sperm is growing. It passes through this checkmark we call the epididymis. And the epididymis is the place that gives the flagella motility. If you've seen a sperm before, you kind of know it has flagella. It's kind of the most distinctive aspect of the sperm. So they give the flagella motility. And after that, they're stored until ejaculation. So the sperm are kind of bored until ejaculation comes. <laughs> ejaculation comes. All right. Yeah. So the sperm, they travel through the vas deferens to the ejaculatory duct. And that ejaculatory duct is at the posterior end of the prostate gland. And then after that, they finally come out through the urethra. So a good mnemonic for the sperm pathway is 7-up. Pretty popular mnemonic. So the first letter of each part of the pathway corresponds to the mnemonic. So 7, seminiferous tubules, epididymis, vas deferens, ejaculation tract, and then the N in 7-up is nothing. And then the up part is urethra and penis. So 7-up, seminiferous tubules, epididymis, vas deferens, ejaculation tract, nothing, urethra, and penis. So when sperm passes through the reproductive tract, it mixes with seminal fluid. This seminal fluid is made by the seminal vesicle, prostate gland, and the bulbal urethral gland. So three components to seminal fluid. The seminal vesicle, it just makes the fructose to nourish the sperm on its journey. The seminal vesicle here is kind of like Sertoli cells in the seminiferous tubules, except the Sertoli cells help nourish the sperm when they're being matured, and the seminal vesicle helps to nourish the sperm on their way out during ejaculation. The prostate gland plus the seminal vesicle help 
gives sperm alkaline properties. Then finally, the bulbo-urethral gland makes this clear, viscous fluid that cleans out the tract before the sperm, cleans out any remnants of urine, and gives it some lubrication. Kind of weird, but if you've ever seen the sport of curling, the people who brush the ice in front of the stone reminds me of the bulbo-urethral gland, lubricating and cleaning on the journey. So semen is the end component of sperm and seminal fluid, um, and the seminal fluid is made by the seminal vesicle, the prostate gland, and finally the bulbo-urethral gland. All right, so we talked about the journey of the sperm. Let's talk about the sperm itself. Sperm are made from meiosis, as we discussed. Germ cells make sperm, and that occurs in the seminiferous tubules. So let's go through meiosis and talk about the wording of the sperm at each step, because for some reason, they decided to throw a ton of vocab at you about sperm. So spermatogonia are the diploid cells in males, and through mitosis, they make diploid primary spermatocytes. Then after meiosis one, we get secondary spermatocytes. Then after meiosis two, we get spermatids. And remember at the end of meiosis two, they're haploid. So spermatids with time become spermatozoa. So spermatogonia is gonna become sperm. Gonia, gonna. I don't know, that's a stretch, but you can kind of connect that spermatogonia is early and it's diploid. And remember that germ cells can undergo mitosis and meiosis. So after mitosis, they become spermatocytes. And we know with mitosis that it produces identical daughter cells. So that means the daughter cells are also diploid. So these daughter cells are called diploid primary spermatocytes. Then after that, we do meiosis. The first division occurs and we get some secondary spermatocytes. And then meiosis 2 occurs and we get spermatids, which are haploid. Finally, the spermatids with time become spermatozoa. So essentially, the word spermatogonia is before mitosis and meiosis. Spermatocytes is during mitosis and meiosis. Spermatids is after mitosis and meiosis. And with time, spermatids become spermatozoa. A good mnemonic to remember this is gonna see the zoo. But the C is the letter C. So let's take the different sperm wordings we have here. Spermatogonia, spermatocytes, spermatid, and spermatozoa. Now, let's notice that the first half is always the same, right? It always starts with sperma, but the second half is different. So the first phase is gonia, spermatogonia, and that corresponds with gonna in the mnemonic gonna see the zoo. The second word is site, spermatocyte, so that corresponds to the C, gonna see the zoo, spermatocyte. Third word is tid, spermatid. So that's the the part of the mnemonic, gonna see the zoo. And the last part is zoa, spermatozoa, that corresponds with zoo. So if you break this down, gonna see the zoo, spermatogonia, spermatocyte, spermatid, spermatozoa, you're golden. The actual anatomy of sperm includes the head, which has the genetic information and an acrosome cap that's needed to penetrate the ovum. Then we have the midpiece that's filled with mitochondria used to make ATP from the fructose. Remember, the seminal vesicle gives the sperm fructose on its journey. And finally, we have the flagellum, which is used for movement. All right, so we're all done with males. Let's get into females. The female reproductive tract has all the organs inside. The gonads are known as ovaries, and those make both estrogen and progesterone. Only one egg is ovulated per month and the immature ova is surrounded by these follicles that are there to nourish them and protect them. The uterus is the site of the fetal development, and the lower end is the cervix, and it's connected to the vaginal canal. Finally, the vulva is the external female anatomy. So with oogenesis, aka the production of female gametes, it's a lot of moving parts, and there are a set amount of oogonia a woman has. That's made during the fetal development of a girl. So by the time a girl is born, all their oogonia has undergone DNA replication and they're considered primary oocytes. They're all diploid and they all stay in that prophase 1 section. Remember, prophase 1 of meiosis is when the homologous chromosomes get to know each other, crossing over happens, all that fun, unique meiosis stuff. So primary oocytes stay all throughout primary school. That's a good way to remember the timing. Secondary oocytes come at the first menstrual cycle. At that point, one at a time, the primary oocytes complete meiosis 1, make a secondary oocyte, and a polar body. So remember, meiosis 1 makes two daughter cells. In this case, one cell is a secondary oocyte, and the other cell is a polar body. 
In meiosis, we aren't trying to get identical daughter cells like mitosis. So having two different daughter cells here makes sense. The difference between a polar body and the secondary oocyte is the amount of cytoplasm. The polar body gets almost no cytoplasm, but the secondary oocyte gets plenty. So with all that real estate that the secondary oocyte has, it has way more space to divide, and so it will. Meanwhile, the polar body will not. The secondary oocyte goes ahead, it does prophase 2, and then it gets stuck in metaphase 2. So if you remember metaphase 2, the chromatids are all lined up at that metaphase plate. If fertilization happens, we advance. If not, it gets disintegrated and released in menstruation. So oocytes are surrounded by two layers. First layer is the zona pellucida. It surrounds the oocyte itself, and the zona pellucida is just a mix of glycoproteins for protection and for sperm binding. Then outside of that, we have the corona radiata, which is outside the zona pellucida, and the sperm break down this layer with these enzymes in their acrosome, which if you remember, the acrosome is a part of the head region of the sperm. All right, so let's say it's a couple's lucky day and the secondary oocyte does get fertilized. The sperm goes through both of these layers, the corona radiata and the zona pellucida, and then the secondary oocyte breaks down into yet another polar body, plus the big old mature ovum. The mature ovum is thick with two C's. It's that big because it has to give all of its organelles, cytoplasm, and physical space for the zygote, as well as half of the DNA and RNA that the zygote needs. The sperm kind of just chills there and gives the other half. So we finally say meiosis 2 finishes when the haploid sperm and the ovum nuclei join together and we get that diploid zygote. Okay, so before we get deeper into the craziness that happens once that zygote is made, let's talk about sexual development. So when we're little kids, the hypothalamus restricts the production of gonadotropin-releasing hormones, aka GnRH. It tells that GnRH to chill before puberty. Once the gonadotropin-releasing hormone starts pumping after puberty, we get the anterior pituitary gland in the brain to make and release two hormones, the follicle-stimulating hormone and the luteinizing hormone. Those two hormones are key factors for sexual development. So basically, post-puberty, GnRH, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, makes LH, luteinizing hormone, and FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. With males, we have that fancy Y chromosome, which makes us produce androgens, when we're in the fetus, but androgen production is low during childhood. Just a heads up, androgens are basically just male sex hormones, so testosterone, that's an androgen. And so the two hormones that gonadotropin-releasing hormone produces, which are A, follicle-stimulating hormone, and B, luteinizing hormone, those go ahead and they produce mature sperm and produce testosterone. So FSH, it makes Sertoli cells mature the sperm, and LH makes the Leydig cells make testosterone. Females, they also get some changes because of FSH and LH. Estrogen is made as a response to FSH. It develops and maintains the female reproductive system. So in the embryo, it stimulates the development of the reproductive tract, and in adults, it thickens the lining of the uterus in what's called the endometrium. It does that each month when it prepares for the zygote. Progesterone, that's secreted by the corpus luteum initially. The corpus luteum is the remnant of the follicle that stays after ovulation. So progesterone is controlled by luteinizing hormone, aka LH. This is also important for the development and maintenance of the endometrium, but not the creation of the endometrium. So estrogen is used for the creation of endometrium. Progesterone is used for the development and maintenance of it. When we get later in the first trimester, we switch the source of progesterone from the corpus luteum to the placenta. So basically, FSH makes estrogen. Estrogen thickens the endometrium every month in preparation for the zygote. And LH makes progesterone. That helps maintain the endometrium, but it doesn't make the endometrium like estrogen does. All right, so the menstrual cycle. There's basically three stages to start. And if fertilization occurs, we go down the pregnancy path. If it doesn't, we go down the menstruation path. The first stage is the follicular stage. This starts when the menstrual flow starts. Menstrual flow is the shedding of the uterine lining, aka the endometrium. So essentially, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, GnRH, that we talked about, is secreted from the hypothalamus when a woman has decreased concentrations of estrogen and progesterone. So GnRH, it makes the luteinizing hormone and the follicle-stimulating hormone, 
and those two make progesterone and estrogen respectively. So when estrogen and progesterone are low, which happens at the end of a menstrual cycle, the body goes, oh crap, let's get these up again. So gonadotropin-releasing hormone increases that FSH and LH, which starts working together to make several ovarian follicles. When the ovarian follicles are made, they start making estrogen themselves. So when the parts downstairs start doing their thing, the part upstairs can go ahead and chill out for the rest of the time. Gonadotropin-releasing hormone relaxes and the LH and FSH from the anterior pituitary in your brain starts to level off. Not decline, but level off. The estrogen from these follicles then regrows the endometrial lining by vascularization and glandularization. It basically increases the blood flow and starts rebuilding what was lost with menstruation. So the follicular phase starts with the help of GnRH in the brain, but then the star of this phase is, unsurprisingly, the ovarian follicles. Follicular phase. After that, we have ovulation. Ovulation is actually late in the follicular phase. The follicles secrete really high concentrations of estrogen at this point, and that hits a threshold which spikes the upstairs hormones, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, and luteinizing hormone. The important hormone for ovulation is the luteinizing hormone. The spike in LH makes ovulation occur. The ovum sees that spike and it jumps out of the ovary and gets into the peritoneal cavity. So then we get into this third part here, and that's the luteal phase. We mentioned the corpus luteum before. It's the remnant follicle that remains after ovulation. LH is the reason the corpus luteum is made from those remnant follicles. That corpus luteum's main role is to secrete progesterone and the progesterone levels increase while estrogen is still super high. So progesterone is high and that tells upstairs hormones, GnRH, LH, and FSH to chill and not accidentally ovulate multiple eggs. We just want one at this time. So at this point, the three phases are done. We're at a crossroads depending on if fertilization occurs or not. Now, the menstrual cycle is confusing. There's lots of different hormones going up and down, so it's hard to get a good grasp on it. I'll go over it one more time, but I highly suggest looking at a diagram as well. So in fast forward, the follicular phase starts when the endometrium starts shedding. The gonadotropin-releasing hormone from the hypothalamus causes a spike in estrogen and progesterone, and this causes two things, the regrowth of the endometrial lining as well as the development of ovarian follicles. The development of the follicles causes gonadotropin-releasing hormone, luteinizing hormone, and follicle-stimulating hormone to chill and level off. Then, at the end of the follicular phase, we have ovulation. Here, follicles that we made in the follicular phase start working independently. They start secreting estrogen themselves, and that causes a spike in the upstairs hormones, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, luteinizing hormone, and follicle-stimulating hormone. The spike in LH, luteinizing hormone, makes the ovum get released from the ovary. So at this point, we went from GnRH in the brain releasing FSH and LH, which produced an ovarian follicle, which makes estrogen, which spikes LH, which causes ovulation. Pretty confusing. Finally, after ovulation, we get the luteal phase. The spike in LH causes the production of the corpus luteum, which increases progesterone. Progesterone crashes the party and makes gonadotropin-releasing hormone, luteinizing hormone, and follicle-stimulating hormone chill out so we don't get multiple eggs ovulated. Alright, so we went from gonadotropin-releasing hormone in the brain, releasing follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, which produced an ovarian follicle, which makes estrogen. Estrogen spikes that luteinizing hormone, which causes ovulation. Then that spike in luteinizing hormone caused the corpus luteum to come out and make progesterone. That progesterone from the corpus luteum then tells the gonadotropin-releasing hormone, luteinizing hormone, and follicle-stimulating hormones to go back home. So GnRH makes FSH and LH. FSH and LH makes estrogen. Estrogen makes LH. LH makes progesterone. Progesterone decreases GnRH, LH, and FSH. Wow. All right. So finally, we come to the crossroads of menstruation and pregnancy. So menstruation is when implantation does not occur. The corpus luteum, which remember was made from the ruptured follicle, that starts losing stimulation. That loss of stimulation then lowers the progesterone levels and the uterine lining is shed off. And at this point, you can see how the cycle repeats. The GnRH says, oh snap, the progesterone that kicked us out is leaving. Let's go back in. 
If pregnancy does occur, we get a new hormone invited to the party. A zygote develops into a blastocyst that implants into the endometrium and secretes human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG. This human chorionic gonadotropin is basically the same thing as LH, and remember LH was used to develop the corpus luteum to make progesterone. So the HCG is basically LH's twin and tells everyone downstairs that the party isn't over, and the corpus luteum makes sure the endometrium doesn't shed by making estrogen and progesterone. And some pregnancy tests use HCG to see if you're pregnant. Since that hormone is only present after implantation, if HCG is detected, then you got a fun nine months ahead of you. All right, so then we have menstruation. As you age, your ovaries become less sensitive to luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone. They don't get as excited when the upstairs neighbors come downstairs, and that causes ovarian atrophy, or ovarian degeneration. And the endometrium starts to atrophy as the estrogen and progesterone starts to drop. Menopause then means that there is high LH and FSH in the blood, but the ovaries aren't really vibing with it. So that's that, but let's get a little deeper on pregnancy and embryogenesis, and then we'll call this episode a wrap. So fertilization occurs in the fallopian tube, and the oocyte can be fertilized for up to 24 hours. You got that 24-hour window for fertilization, and if you miss it, then it's mission failed. Or mission succeeded, I guess. It kind of depends on if you want a baby or not. So the fallopian tube has three parts, and the second part, which is also the longest, is the ampulla. The ampulla dilates, and that's where fertilization is most likely to occur. So the sperm meets a secondary oocyte in the ampulla, says what's up, and then releases acrosomal enzymes. These enzymes help the sperm penetrate those two layers we talked about earlier, the corona radiata and the zona pellucida. So when the sperm penetrates the cell membrane, we get what's called a cortical reaction. That's an influx in calcium ions. So when you hear cortical, think calcium. Calcium goes ahead and depolarizes the membrane and increases the metabolic rate of the zygote that just formed. The zygote is a diploid cell made from the fusion of two haploid gametes, the sperm and the secondary oocyte. Once that reaction happens, the cell membrane of the egg is impossible to penetrate. It's called the fertilization membrane. It's kind of like a halo field. It's depolarized and no other sperm can crash the party. Now, if you think about twins, you know, those can also occur at this stage. If it's fraternal twins, aka dizygotic, then two different eggs are fertilized by two different sperm. If you're an identical twin or monozygotic, then it's a single zygote that splits into two. So fraternal twins is two different eggs getting fertilized, and identical twins is the same egg that gets fertilized splitting into two when it's a zygote. Now the scare with identical twins is conjoined twins. So if that zygote split isn't complete, then they could possibly grow as conjoined twins. The number one thing to note here is that no variation of twins has two sperm going for one egg. That's impossible due to the cortical reaction. So the zygote at this point is moving down from the fallopian tube to the uterus, and as it does, it starts to really rapidly divide. A zygote is a single-celled organism. When it starts to divide, it's classified as an embryo. So this embryo keeps getting more cells, but the actual size doesn't change. Instead, there are just more cells in that area. So let's imagine a box that we throw a ping pong ball in. With more ping pong balls that we throw in, the box isn't getting bigger, but the amount of ping pong balls in that box increases. So each ball is a cell, and with increased ping pong balls in that box, there's more surface area. If I throw water in the box, the water can cover more surfaces of the ping pong balls than if there was just one ball in the box. So surface area increases, box size stays the same, so volume is constant, and therefore we can conclude that the nuclear to cytoplasm ratio and the surface area to volume ratio are both getting higher and higher. That's important because there's more area for nutrient and gas exchange. Then we get to blastulation. So after enough ping pong balls gets placed in that box, it becomes pretty dense. It's almost like a solid mass. That's known as a morula. So we went over fertilization with psychology and sociology back in the earlier episodes, and I think I did a pretty good job there. So I'm just going to go ahead and hit the trusty old copy and paste real fast and run through that again. So the cells start dividing in that zona pellucida until you have 32 cells. We call these 32 cells the morula. A good way to remember that the morula is a product of cell division to go from 1 to 32 cells, think of morula being a product of more cell divisions. 
The morula is important because this is what then differentiates into the trophoblast and the embryoblast. The trophoblast is on the outside and it makes the placenta and nourishes the baby later on, but the embryoblast is the VIP because the embryoblast helps form the fetus. Alright, so that embryoblast, right, that does a bit more. It's involved in blastulation, so the embryoblast gets a little tighter and makes two things, an inner cell mass and a hollow cavity we call the blastocele. So you might be wondering why it's called blastulation and where blastocele comes from. They're both Greek. Blastulation comes from the word blastos, which means sprout, which makes sense because this is a process of kids literally sprouting from some microscopic thing, and the soel, coel part of blastocele means cave or cavity, which also makes sense because the blastocele is a hollow cavity. So the inner cell mass is the fun part. That hangs around on one side, while the hollow cavity hangs around on the other side of the zygote. The inner cell mass makes three layers, the amniotic cavity, the epiblast, and the hypoblast. The amniotic cavity is at the top, the epiblasts are at the middle, which is the layer over the hypoblast, just like A is before the letter E and the letter E is before the letter H. So we have the amniotic cavity, the epiblasts, and the hypoblast. So in summary with blastulation, the morula's embryoblast makes an inner cell mass and a hollow cavity called a blastocele, and then the inner cell splits even further into the amniotic cavity at the top, the epiblast in the middle, and the hypoblast on the bottom kind of an alphabetical order from top to bottom. So after blastulation, there's implantation, but during implantation, two stages occur, gastrulation and neurulation. So after blastulation, we have gastrulation. Now you might be wondering where the word gastrulation came from. Well, gastro means stomach because originally they thought this stage was just about the formation of the gut, but it's actually more about the formation of the trilaminar embryo, which is basically the three germ layers. The germ layers are the ectoderm on the top, the mesoderm in the middle, and the endoderm on the bottom. To remember what is where, just know the ectoderm is the only one with the letter T in it, so it makes sense that this germ layer is on the top. The mesoderm starts with the letter M, so it's in the middle, and the endoderm, you can kind of fill in the rest, you know it's on the bottom. Finally, there's neurulation, where the core in the mesoderm becomes a notochord. And a great mnemonic for this is my baby grows nicely. So the first letter of each word corresponds to a phase. My is for morula, baby is for blastula, grows for gastrula, nicely for neurulation. So morula, blastula, gastrula, neurulation, my baby grows nicely. All right, so back to the implantation. That's when the endometrium beefs up while the zona pellucida of the zygote starts breaking down. They're getting ready to land on the endometrium and form a connection so they can hit the next phase of growth. Now remember earlier we talked about the trophoblast, how the morula splits into a trophoblast and an embryoblast? Well, we put a lot of attention on the embryoblast, but in implantation, the trophoblast really shines. It makes a few transformations and then it's able to fuse blood vessels with the endometrium to become the bridge between mother and child, transporting nutrients and waste. This whole web of blood vessels that the trophoblast formed is called the placenta. So at this point in psychology and sociology, we stopped, but let's get a bit more in the weeds for now. All right, so that whole placenta is being made and the zygote is forming roots in the endometrium. But while that's happening, the gastrulation stage is happening simultaneously. Remember we said the layers of gastrulation are the ectoderm, which is on the top, the mesoderm, which is on the middle, and the endoderm, which is in the bottom? The ectoderm makes all the quote-unquote outer stuff, like the outer layers of your skin and sweat glands, paired with the nervous system, both central and peripheral nervous systems. The mesoderm makes the inner layers of the skin. It makes the muscles, the bones, kidneys, bladder, and sexual organs. The endoderm lastly makes things that have to do with digestion and the lungs. So that means the endoderm makes the GI tract, the liver, the pancreas, and the lungs. So all right, fast forward a bit and we're at the fetus stage. With the fetus, the placenta is where it's at. It's a place where nutrient, gas, and waste exchange occur between the fetus and the mother. Diffusion runs along the oxygen gradient, and the fetal hemoglobin has a higher affinity to oxygen than adult hemoglobin. So the placenta is also homey because it gives you immune protection. Antibodies, they cross over in order to protect the fetus from exposure to stuff in utero. In utero just means in the uterus, but it's also a Nirvana album. Not sure what you can do with that information, but yeah. So there's two ways of transmission. There's the umbilical arteries and the umbilical veins. Now, in a normal adult, 
arteries go away from the heart, which means it carries that rich oxygenated blood. Artery equals away. But in the fetus, we flip it. Umbilical arteries carry blood away from the fetus, yeah. So artery always does equal away. But the fetus at this point isn't pumping its own oxygenated blood. The lungs and the liver don't serve important functions for the fetus until birth. So at this point, the fetus is using up that oxygenated nutrients. So umbilical arteries actually are carrying away used blood to the placenta. And the umbilical veins carry fresh blood with oxygen and nutrients towards the fetus from the placenta. There's three shunts you need to know about. Shunts are used to actively draw blood away from the organs in a fetus that aren't used when the blood pressure gets too high. So the three shunts are the foramen ovale, the ductus arteriosus, and the ductus venus. But good news, these are pretty low yield terms. I'd rather you spend time looking up other things and memorizing what these shunts do. Just know that the fetus has three shunts and shunts are used to actively direct the blood away from certain organs like the liver and the heart. So at this point, you need to know the three trimesters, but that's also not incredibly high yield. Major organs develop in the first trimester. Second trimester is known for tremendous amounts of growth and a more human appearance. And the third trimester is also known for more growth and more brain development until the end where the growth rate slows down. The third trimester is known for the amount of antibodies that are also transported. So with birth, it's done by rhythmic movements of the smooth uterine lining, which is controlled by prostaglandins and the peptide hormone known as oxytocin. There's positive feedback with oxytocin during birth. So there's a uterine contraction and then a bigger one because of the last, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Oxytocin has positive feedback. All right, let's get into cell specialization, which is the last part here, but it's an important part of development. Let's talk about differentiation. So differentiation occurs after determination and includes changing the structure, function, and biochemistry of the cell to match that cell type. Stem cells are cells that haven't differentiated. They're still free. And there's different types of stem cells varying in their freedom and what they can become. So totipotent cells have the greatest potency, and they include embryonic stem cells. They can literally differentiate into any cell type. Totipotent cells are totally free. Pluripotent cells are pretty free. They can differentiate into anything but those found in the placental structures. And then multipotent, they're free, but they can only differentiate into the certain types of cells within a group. So the bone marrow of an adult has multipotent cells. They're great. They can turn into whatever type of blood cells they want, but they're restricted to only being blood cells, nothing else. Then we have cell-to-cell communication. There are autocrine signals. Those are signals that act on the same cell that secreted it in the first place. It releases it, then grabs its own signal. Paracrine signals act in that local area. Juxacrine signals aren't diffused. They're like a cell directly stimulating receptors of an adjacent cell. Think juxacrine equals just in because juxacrine signals are just in a certain specified cell. And then finally, endocrine signals. Those are involved in the secretion of hormones through the bloodstream. So that's like really traveling, you know. And then a few other terms, cell migration, cell death, regeneration. Cell migration is when a cell can disconnect and migrate to the right location. Cell death is known as apoptosis and it's needed at certain stages of development. But necrosis, that's when a cell dies because of injury and internal substances are leaked. Finally, regeneration is how well you can regrow certain parts of your body. Humans have incomplete regeneration. If you cut your arm off, you're not growing it back. But salamanders, on the other hand, have some of the highest regenerative capacities. They can fully regrow limbs when needed. Complete regeneration like that requires stem cells to migrate to the right part of the body and start that regrowth. So finally, in that category of stuff, we have senescence and aging. Senescence is like the biological aging. With cells, that is like their inability to divide normally after 50 divisions. But that might just be due to shortened telomeres. Telomeres are the caps on the ends of chromosomes, and they help the DNA from unraveling, but every time we synthesize DNA as we undergo mitosis, the caps get a little shorter. There's an enzyme, though, called telomerase that can make new ends of the chromosomes, and that's actually part of the reason why cancer cells not only survive, but they flourish, and they replicate so well in the human body. Alright, so at this point, we are done with the content for the episode. Interesting topics on this episode, but they're definitely pretty far in the weeds. Lots of small things to remember. So go over this podcast a few times, check it out in a book, whatever you do. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts app, I would love if you could rate or review this. 
If you're listening at all at this point, please follow for more MCAT content or subscribe. I guess the wording just depends on what app you're using. As I've been doing lately, I'll give a high yield summary of concepts that I personally found important here. So we started off talking about the cell cycle and mitosis. With the cell cycle, there are four stages you have to know about G1, S, G2, and M. The first three are interface. So G1, S, and G2 are the interface stuff. Along with that, we learned a good way scientists see if interphase is happening is they look at the chromosomes. If there are visibly formed chromosomes, then it's not interphase. Interphase is all less condensed chromatin. And a quick mnemonic for mitosis is go, Sally, go, make children. G1, S, G2, mitosis, cytokinesis. During G1, the cells make organelles and basically make two things, energy and protein. There's a check at G1 to see if we can replicate, and at the end of it, we basically have all cellular contents besides the chromosomes duplicated. During synthesis, DNA gets synthesized. We replicate genetic information, the 46 chromosomes gets duplicated, and at the end of synthesis, there are still 46 chromosomes, but they're in this X shape. G2 happens, and it basically checks to see if replication turned out okay, looking at both chromosomes and organelles. The checkpoints are necessary and we learned about an important protein called P53, which is the guardian of the genome. Then we got the big boy, the last stage of the cell cycle, which is mitosis. The mnemonic we use for mitosis is P on the mat, prophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. Prophase, we condense the chromatin into chromosomes, the nuclear membrane dissolves, and spindle fibers start reaching for that genetic material. Metaphase aligns the chromosomes to the equator and the spindle fibers attach to the sister chromatids. In anaphase, the chromatids separate after the centromere splits, the spindle fibers shorten and pull the chromosome to opposite poles of the cell, and the chromatids are now considered as separate chromosomes. Lastly, in telophase, the chromosomes unwind into chromatin, the nuclear membrane reforms, the nucleolus reappears, and the centrioles and spindle fibers disappear. So that's everything for mitosis. We talked about meiosis as well and how it's pretty similar. Know that germ cells can do both mitosis and meiosis and that meiosis makes four daughter cells with two rounds of division and mitosis makes two daughter cells with one round of division. Mitosis and meiosis both have one round of replication though. The unique concepts of meiosis start with prophase one where we have crossing over and the concept of synapsis which is when homologous chromosomes come together and intertwine. In metaphase 1 of meiosis, homologous pairs, aka the tetrads, align at the middle. Anaphase 1 and telophase 1 happens, and sometimes the cell chills in this stage called interkinesis. Meiosis 1 is called reduction division. Meiosis 2 is called chromatid separation. The important part of meiosis 2 to know is that in prophase 2, the homologous chromatids don't duplicate, they just separate. After that, we moved on to the reproductive anatomy we learned that males are more likely to express sex-linked disorders because they're hemizygous. They have one X chromosome and one Y chromosome. This makes females more likely to be carriers and men more likely to actually suffer from those sex-linked disorders. With males, we also learned about 7-up, the sperm pathway, seminiferous tubules, epididymis, vas deferens, ejaculation tract, the N stands for nothing, urethra, and penis, 7-up. The seminiferous tubules are the site of germination, maturation, and transportation of the sperm cells within the male testes. Ladyx cells are found next to the seminiferous tubules in the testicle. They make testosterone when luteinizing hormone is present. Along with that, we learned that the seminal fluid is made by the seminal vesicle, the prostate gland, and the bulbo-urethral gland. The seminal vesicle here is kind of like Sertoli cells in the seminiferous tubules, except the Sertoli cells help nourish the sperm when they're being matured, and the seminal vesicle helps nourish the sperm on their way out during ejaculation. The prostate gland and the seminal vesicle help give sperm alkaline, which is basic, properties. Finally, the bulbo-urethral gland makes this clear, viscous fluid that cleans out the tract before the sperm, cleans out any remnants of urine, and gives it some lubrication. We also talked about the wording of sperm, and the best way to remember that is the mnemonic, gonna see the zoo. The C being the letter C here. So spermatogonia, spermatocyte, spermatid, and spermatozoa are the four stages. The first half of every stage starts with the word sperma, so let's ignore that. The second half of the phrase is what we're focusing on. 
The first stage is gonia, you know, spermatogonia. So that corresponds to the gonna in the mnemonic. The second word is site, spermatocyte. So that corresponds to the C. Remember their letter C, spermatocyte. There you go. Third word is tid, spermatid. So that's the part of the mnemonic, gonna see the zoo. And the last part is zoa, spermatozoa. And that corresponds with zoo. So if you break that down, gonna see the zoo, spermatogonia, spermatocyte, spermatid, and spermatozoa, you're good. If you look at the sperm itself, the head has all the genetic information and an acrosome cap that's needed to penetrate the ovum. The midpiece is filled with mitochondria to make ATP from the fructose. And finally, we have the flagellum, which is used for movement. We went pretty in-depth with females, and I won't lie, this part is confusing because there's so many hormones moving up and down. When a female is born, all their oogonia have undergone DNA replication, and they're considered primary oocytes. They're all diploid, and they all stay in that prophase 1 section. Remember, prophase 1 of meiosis is where the homologous chromosomes get to know each other, crossing over happens, all that fun, unique meiosis stuff. So primary oocytes stay all throughout primary school. That's a good way to remember the timing. Secondary oocytes come at the first menstrual cycle. At that point, one at a time, primary oocytes complete meiosis one, make a secondary oocyte and a polar body. So to remember, meiosis one makes two daughter cells. In this case, one cell is a secondary oocyte. The other is a polar body. The difference between the polar body and the secondary oocyte is the amount of cytoplasm. The polar body gets almost no cytoplasm, but the secondary oocyte gets plenty. The secondary oocyte goes ahead and does prophase 2, and then it gets stuck in the metaphase 2. So if you remember metaphase 2, the chromatids line up at the metaphase plate. If fertilization happens, we advance. If not, then it's disintegrated and released in menstruation. The oocyte itself has two layers, the zona pellucida and the corona radiata. The zona pellucida is the closest to the oocyte. The corona radiata is on the outside of the zona pellucida. Then we got into the hormones, and that's something I highly suggest looking at diagrams for. When we're little kids, the hypothalamus restricts the production of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, aka GnRH. The hypothalamus tells that GnRH to chill before puberty, and once that hormone starts pumping after puberty, we get the anterior pituitary gland in the brain to make and release two hormones, the follicle-stimulating hormone and the luteinizing hormone. Those two hormones are key factors for sexual development. We learned about the interaction of FSH, LH, estrogen, and progesterone in females. Basically, FSH makes estrogen. Estrogen thickens the endometrium every month in preparation for the zygote. And LH makes progesterone, and that helps maintain the endometrium, but it doesn't make the endometrium like estrogen does. With the menstrual cycle, there are three stages. First is the follicular stage. Second is ovulation. And lastly is the luteal stage. The follicular stage is where menstrual flow is going on. And let's just think about this logically. What is menstrual flow? It's a shedding of the endometrium lining, right? So what happens when that gets shed? We want to remake it. So that's basically what the female body does every month. There's no baby. We restart the process and it goes on over and over again. So that shedding of the endometrium is going on. And that gets our FSH and LH up, which gets to making ovarian follicles, hence why this stage is called the follicular stage. Ovarian follicles start making estrogen themselves and start regrowing the endometrial lining. So ovulation, that's just later in the follicular stage. The follicles are pumping that estrogen like crazy at this point, so much so that it hits a threshold and the brain goes, you know, that's it, let's spike the FSH and LH. So ovulation is a crazy time because everything is going up. The ovum sees all the hormones spiking and goes, yo, this is crazy. I'm out of here. Leaves the ovary and gets in the peritoneal cavity. The luteal phase is like the chill out phase. The body just went in crazy mode and now we got to calm it down. So here the follicles realize the oocyte is gone and folds into itself, making the corpus luteum. This structure starts releasing progesterone along with small amounts of estrogen. This combination of hormones maintains the thickened lining of the uterus, waiting for a fertilized egg to stick to it. If we get that successful implantation of a fertilized egg, we start pumping in hormones to maintain the corpus luteum, and the corpus luteum, again, is basically a rehashed version of the ovarian follicle. So the hormones we pump include human chorionic gonadotropin. And fun fact, pregnancy tests are looking for this hormone, human chorionic gonadotropin, because if you do have it, then it has to mean an egg was implanted successfully. 
the corpus luteum keeps producing the raised levels of progesterone that are needed to maintain that thickened lining of uterus. On the other hand, if we don't get an implanted fertilized egg, the corpus luteum withers and dies, and that causes this huge drop in progesterone levels, causing the lining of the uterus to fall away. And we know that as menstruation. Now, before we summarize fertilization and pregnancy, let's talk about menopause. With aging, your ovaries become less sensitive to luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone. They don't get as excited when the upstairs neighbors come downstairs, and that causes ovarian atrophy, which is ovarian degeneration. The endometrium starts to atrophy as the estrogen and the progesterone start to drop. So how do we see if there's menopause? If we have high levels of LH and FSH in the blood, but the ovaries are like, nah, I'm good. With fertilization, we talked about how the ampulla of the fallopian tubes is where the fertilization is most likely to occur. We also talked about what sperm do when they meet up with the egg. They shake hands, then cause a cortical reaction. That's like an influx in calcium ions. And I could actually see a test question like that, you know, like which ion is increased during fertilization and it would be calcium. Calcium goes crazy, depolarizes the combined zygote that we just made. That's like a halo shield that stops other sperm from crashing the party. Anyways, the zygote starts moving down the fallopian tube and divides like crazy, at which point we call it an embryo. The embryo has a higher surface area, but the same volume, and there's more area for nutrient and gas exchange. Then we went over blastulation, just a heads up. The morula is made of a trophoblast and an embryoblast. So in summary, with blastulation, the morula's embryoblast makes an inner cell mass and a hollow cavity called the blastocele, and then the inner cell splits even further into the amniotic cavity at the top, the epiblast in the middle, and the hypoblast on the bottom in alphabetical order from top to bottom. We have gastrulation and neurulation. Gastrulation is the formation of the three germ layers, and neurulation is the formation of the notochord. A great mnemonic for this is my baby grows nicely. So the first letter of each word corresponds to a phase. My for morula, baby for blastula, grows for gastrula, nicely for neurulation. So morula, blastula, gastrula, neurulation, my baby grows nicely. The other part of the morula, which we've been ignoring so far, the trophoblasts I mentioned, that does its job during implantation. It becomes the bridge between the mother and the child, aka the trophoblast is the placenta. So fast forward a bit, we get to the fetus stage. The placenta is really the MVP here because it does all the heavy lifting, immune protection, nutrient exchange, waste exchange, all that. Just a heads up, the umbilical arteries and veins. Arteries usually carry blood away from the heart to the rest of the body, but umbilical arteries carry blood away from the fetus. It carries used up blood to the placenta and the umbilical veins carry fresh, oxygenated blood from the placenta to the fetus. We talked about birth. With birth, we have positive feedback. Oxytocin increases and increases, causing bigger and bigger contractions. And I'll conclude this summary with totipotent, pluripotent, and multipotent. Totipotent has total freedom. Uh, pluripotent is pretty free. And multipotent is just kind of free. So the bone marrow of an adult has multipotent cells. So that's it. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, it's been a long time since I've done this, but I appreciate all the support. I'll try my best to keep blasting these out. But of course, with med school, it gets a little tough with the timing and all that. But yeah, good luck on your MCAT whenever you guys are taking it. And I'll see you guys on the next episode. <laughs>